This podcast is being brought to you in part by the veteran-founded Hero Soap Company, located in Phoenix, Arizona. In today's environment, we must be aware of the products we apply to our skin. As a two-time cancer survivor, I cannot afford to take chances, and I use these products myself. The soaps will leave you feeling clean and refreshed. All the products made by the Hero Soap Company are made in the United States with the highest quality ingredients sourced from companies in the United States whenever possible. The products are made in small batches to ensure high quality and contain premium essential oils and fragrance. All Hero Soaps are created without synthetic colorants, parabens, and sulfates that are irritating to the eyes, skin, mouth, and lungs, and are cruelty-free, meaning these products are not tested on animals. Each 5-ounce bar of soap is handmade in Phoenix, Arizona, and the body wash is available in 8 ounces with such refreshing scents as the woods, tea tree, lavender, the fields, bourbon, lime, the pines, and arctic. You will absolutely love this soap. Please also check out their gear for sale. All the products are reasonably priced. Being veteran-founded, the company understands the dedication and sacrifice that each family makes to serve their country. A portion of sales is donated back to charities that are focused on helping veterans and our first responders. Over 1,200 bars have been sent to our deployed troops. Please check out their website, HeroSoapCompany.com, for pricing and a detailed description of all the products. When ordering, use the code RAP for a 10% discount. The company information will be listed in the podcast notes and featured on the podcast website, Facebook group, page, and the podcast Instagram. Welcome, everyone. It's a wrap with Rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. Before we start, I would like to thank all our listeners, sponsors, and supporters that have helped to make this podcast so successful. The podcast is being heard in all 50 states, all provinces of Canada, and over 45 countries around the world. The podcast has been ranked by Feedspot as one of the top 35 overcoming adversity podcasts from thousands of podcasts on the web in that category. And it's ranked by traffic, social media followers, and content freshness. This podcast features people who have overcome life's challenges and adversities, people who can inspire, motivate, and educate us on an assortment of topics. My guest today is Rob Lohman. Rob has been through the ringer and continues to press on. His life resume includes alcohol and drug addiction, gambling addiction, divorce, bankruptcy, mental health issues, suicide ideation, prison recovery, and transformation. Sober since 2001, Rob currently helps people suffering from substance abuse to find freedom from addiction and incarceration. Rob invests in the lives of those wanting to seek positive change, whether it's coming out of addiction, prison, or just wanting more for their lives. Rob is the founder of the Addiction Recovery Hub, 
and host of the Beyond the Bars radio podcast. He is a dynamic speaker who shares an extremely powerful journey of persistence, faith, and inspiration. Rob is also the author of the Addiction Intervention Book, which is number one in 14 categories for bestseller and new releases on Amazon, as well as two other books, The Momentum Journey, Breakdown at Exit 63, and 101 Reasons to Quit Getting Drunk During the Holidays. Rob's journey has brought him to a place where he has such a heart for helping others, and he is currently developing a transformational house for men who are on their own recovery journey. Welcome, Rob, to the podcast. Hey, hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and I'm reading uh, all your the stuff you're involved. You are a one busy guy. Yeah, I, I like to use the word productive. You know, busy is one of those words when you, people say, oh, I'm so busy, I don't want to talk to you. But when they hear productive, they're like, oh, what are you producing? So, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a productive guy, I like to all say, right. but I am very busy, too. <laughs> yeah, well, productive's good. So yeah. I always like to start at the beginning. What were your early years uh, growing up? And was there an introduction to off-limit substances in that time period? Yeah, so I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, you know, good old Midwest town and aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents. We were all really close to each other. So I loved growing up in Indiana, even right. in the winters. I loved I loved the winters, the summers and everything. And so I wouldn't say I had, you know, you hear some people say they had a traumatic childhood and that's why they drink or drugged, but I didn't really have that. I just really kind of felt like I was wired differently than a lot of other kids. And uh, yeah, alcohol was this allure that it was fun and it was attractive because, you know, grandparents, friends up at, up at the lake in Michigan just had social gatherings and alcohol just looked like it was fun. And so we moved from Fort Wayne, Indiana to Texas, Fort Worth, Texas, when I was nine years old. And that's when things kind of started to change where I didn't really feel like I fit in. So yeah. I was really always trying to seek ways to fit in with other people and alcohol ended up being that outlet for me so how did the alcohol make you feel did it give you like more confidence or or how that worked? yeah well it, it just yeah it made me feel good i mean it was one of those again i didn't have many traumatic moments but it was just trying to fit in so the adjustment of living in the south as a midwest boy but um but yeah i just remember getting drunk for the first time and it was at a Christian youth party in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I'm sorry, Fort Worth, Texas. And one guy brought in six, six, a six pack of beer and just said, Hey, Loman, you want to have a beer with me and these two girls? And I was like, sure. Heck, why not? You know, six pack, two girls and two guys. And I just slammed three beers like that, Ron. Wow. And I always say that I always say that alcohol had me at, and I, from there it was really kind of off to the races. And I'm sure your listeners can relate to that. And, Trying to figure out like, how do I get how did I get started and how do I get out of this kind of mess? And uh, so hey, one thing I wanted to throw out there real quick, Ron, to your people is a little free gift for them, and then we'll move on. Is if people go to freerecoverybook.com, they can get some good resources there. Um, I forget that sometimes, and I just want people to know that's available. But yeah, I just I got drunk that night, and I'll tell you this, Ron, I started wearing contacts, and I don't know if you remember when contacts first came out. Yeah, but they were the hard ones, right? Little tiny round hard ones. Right. And they literally covered your pupil. And I had those in that night. And my mom looks back at me and she's she goes, "What's wrong with your eyes?" And I said, "Oh, mom, my allergies are killing me." And that was it. So I just uh, I found the excuse to be drunk right from the beginning. You know, I was going to kind of stop you at, at, at this stage of the conversation and just to throw this out. 
for the moms and dads out there, I mean, is there any advice you can give them when their kid is that young? And, and you know, did, did your parents have any clue? Like you were you were drinking or what? What can parents yes. what can parents do? You know, to maybe just put the brakes on it at a, at an early age. Yeah, you know that's an interesting question. And as an interventionist and coach, people ask me that a lot. They'll say, you know, my son. I don't know if he's using drugs or whatever now. And I can be talking about a son that's forty, right? That's still an right. immature fifteen year old kid at forty. Uh, but we're talking more about you know around the fifteen, the early teen years, and. Some of the signs are they're losing interest in things they used to have excitement for. And that could just be growing out of a phase, but sometimes it's it's worth looking into. And I see that, you know, I have a 15-year-old son now right. and a 13-year-old daughter. And um I, I'm watching, you know, I'm always watching people. And they're good, they're good kids, right? But um I'm always watching. And so when I hear maybe a friend of theirs that stop doing something like a sport or something just because they don't know why and just dropped out. Uh, sometimes at the base of that's going to be some smoking pot. And, and that seems to be the socially acceptable thing now is like pot's medicinal. And my son needs it because he has ADHD and anxiety and we're an overprescribed, I believe ADHD and anxiety country. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, losing interest in things, uh, sleeping in a lot more. Now, again, that could be teenager, right? Right, but also it could just just paying attention to those and trying to have those authentic conversations with them, not in the moment of possible suspicion of use, but a later time and just say, hey, hey, but let's go for a walk, let's go grab coffee and hang out and just say, I've just been noticing some things. So you doing all right? You experiencing any challenges right now? And if you can have that kind of relationship with them, then they can really open up and um, hopefully let you let the cat out of the bag that they're trying they're drinking a little bit or vaping and the stuff in the vape isn't what it should be. So yeah, lack of motivation and just irritability is another one. Again, we chalk that up to being a teenager, right? but irritability and just sharpness and lack of interest are things to be concerned about. Okay. Uh, That's good advice. Now I might be getting ahead of myself, but when did you realize you had a problem, like an addictive behavior? Was it at a young age, or did you realize that down the road? No, in the beginning. I mean, I started drinking at 14. I started gambling at 15. And it's I was just kind of this all-or-nothing kind of guy. And it was just adrenaline and just kind of, woo, yeah, you know, I mean, yes. So I, I like the rush, and, and I can look back on that now. And that was, you can look at dopamine depletion and dopamine issues, but the brain doesn't stop developing till we're 26. So right. the, this frontal cortex that we have as young men and women, especially men, and we start drinking or using at a young age, really that logic kind of goes out the window a little bit. The ability to deal with conflict and struggles and, and just kind of how you're wired can really play a role in your development. Cause they say, and I got sober at 29 years old, Ron, and I started drinking at 14. So what they say, those experts out there say, is that when you start abusing substances, you really kind of stop developing mentally in a sense. I mean, you don't become like dumb, but yeah. it's like you just kind of stop that that uh, prefrontal cortex processing. And so when I got sober at 29, I, I could agree. I was like a 15, 14, 15, 16-year-old boy. Wow, yeah. Now take us through uh, your high school, college, and early adult years. Uh, what was life like? What did, what did you want to be when you, when you grew up? 
Oh man, I want to be like my doctor. I mean, like my doctor, my <laughs> grandfather, Bapa, he was a doctor in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Great man. He delivered like half the babies in Fort Wayne and just a real respectful guy. And I, and he had a great demeanor about him. He loved his grandkids. And I'm like, I want to be just like Bapa. And that was my goal from a kid till through college. It was, I'm going to go to medical school and be like Bapa. The problem was Ron, there was this shadow of alcoholism and addiction and adrenaline that followed me along. So whenever you put, whenever I put potential and alcohol in the same room together, alcohol won pretty much every single time. Hands down. Oh yeah. I mean, it was, you know, I remember, you know, so high school was really easy for me. I mean, I had, you know, straight A's and, you know, senior class president just joined all these things. It was a good swimmer and senior year. I, I quit swimming because, um, you know, swimming was getting in the way of my alcohol. Yeah. And, uh, I feel like I could have gone far, but who knows? Uh, I feel like then I'm playing God saying, Oh, I could have gone really far if I would. Well, I don't know. But so I quit swimming senior year of high school and then went to college and it was like game on. I mean, I was free. My parents weren't there. They were paying for college. Yeah. But they weren't there with me. And for a guy that was dealing with insecurity, but yet you couldn't tell that on the outside. I can look back and see it. See, I saw I probably suffered from some depression, but you couldn't tell it on the outside. Right. And college was just it was just wild. I mean, I wouldn't I couldn't remember sometimes if something happened freshman year or junior year. And and I just was a, a wild party guy. But I held it together, somehow graduated in four years. You know, and I remember on graduation day, Ron, I was sitting there and, you know, when you go to college, you have your, your, your GPA and your major, and then the rest of your GPA. And if you don't hit the GPA and your major, you can't graduate with that degree. Right. And I'm sitting there and I've got both sets of grandparents and I was, this was back in Indiana. So aunts, uncles, cousins, they all came down and nobody except for me had a clue that I may not graduate. Wow. And Talk I about am pressure. Oh man, I'm freaking out that morning. I, I was, so I, I told him my car before my senior year in a drunk driving accident and just put on a lot of weight my senior year. And the first thing my mom said to me, maybe the second thing was, wow, you've gotten big. And I was just a big, heavy guy and just beer and food. And I'm sitting there on that graduation morning of graduation. I still don't know if I'm going to graduate. And my professor calls me in and says, Loman, get your butt in my office. I'm like, all right. So my heart's pounding. I'm going to his office and he sits me and he's like, what have you been doing all, all year? I said, uh, <laughs> what do you mean? And, and he pulls out this five, it was a five page final and each page had a grade on it. And it was, he goes 99, 100, 97. Like he goes, I've never seen a grade this high in all my tenure here at, at DePaul university. What the hell have you been doing? Wow. And I just looked at him. I said, and I go, did I graduate? He goes, yep. And I just ran out of the <laughs> office and went to graduation. Never told my parents that story until years and years later. Uh, but college was a big blur. And there's definitely, reg- I, I've worked through the regrets in my life. And that's probably one of them that I just, you know, I didn't get it because I was too into my addictions. Did, did uh, during your, your college uh, years, was there any, uh, did the alcohol play any behavioral uh, issues for you? Was oh yeah, problem? yeah. Can you yeah, I mean, I was. That or any? Yeah, just I was just a liar, a manipulator. Um, I could talk myself out of situations I got into very easily. You know, I would work on. 
Like I remember I got in trouble my freshman year and almost got kicked out of school. And and that was like towards the beginning. Let me take a very brief moment out to alert all our patients and caregivers out there that rare patient voice, a supporter of the podcast, is paying for your input. Patients 16 years and older and caregivers, family and friends of any disability, disorder, syndrome, illness, or condition have the opportunity to express their opinions through surveys and interviews to improve medical products and services. Who knows your journey better than you? Rare Patient Voice puts you in touch with researchers who are developing products and services that can help you and others with your condition. These researchers need input of patients to develop products and services that have significant impact on patients' lives. Over the past nine years, Rare Patient Voice has paid patients over $10 million. When you join Rare Patient Voice, you may be invited to participate in interviews, surveys, or online communities where you will share your insights. Rare Patient Voice usually has hundreds of studies running at any time, so there are many opportunities to participate. You will earn $120 per hour for participating in these studies. By making your voice heard, you are a catalyst for change. Rest assured your input will be used to help other patients like you. There is no cost at all to you, the participant. You can get more information and sign up by clicking the link in the sponsor's notes. Getting a school. Yeah. And I, I just remember, set, like, I didn't know how to tell my parents. And I sent my mom a, a cassette tape back then, you know, those cassette tape things they had. Sure. <laughs> sent her a cassette tape and just was, oh, school's going great and all this stuff. I said, oh, by the way, and I just kind of confessed at the end of the tape. What a horrible way to tell your parents you got in trouble. But, yeah, for me, it was just, you know, how did, what I needed to do to just skate by. So what was the quick fix? Because, again, I was a gambler, too. You know, and what could I do to just kind of manipulate situations? And I wasn't like a, a total jerk by any means, but you just couldn't tell the stuff was going on behind the scenes. Externally, yeah, you had a, you had other fraternity brothers and people that were a lot worse than you that drew the attention away from you. But yeah, my behavior was just erratic, drunk driving all the time. You know, a couple overnights in jail in college, and I mean, I, and inside I felt it. I, it was almost like I had convinced myself that God was keeping me alive for a bigger purpose. Yeah. And I was ki- kind of sort of indestructible in a way. And, uh, and there was one night, a friend of mine and I were, we, we borrowed some bikes with bicycles without permission from a fraternity house. Yeah. Which is not, which is called theft. I understand now. <laughs> I was going to say that, but yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and a couple car, a couple cars as well. But you just live for the moment. And I remember one night we rode our bikes out to the rock quarry in Greencastle, Indiana. And it was like a 200-foot drop if you went off the edge, right? Wow. And I'm riding my bike, riding my bike, and tripping on acid and drunk. And my buddy Vince, at the last second, tackles me off of my bike. The bike goes off the edge. Wow. And just went down. And it was one of those moments like, holy cow. And we just went back to the party and just kept going. Like It didn't even phase me. Wow. Man, what, a, what an awful way to live, you know, and, and that didn't stop after college either. I mean, that that mentality continued for a long time until I got sober and still even had to try to break that mentality in recovery because it's not like you get sober and, hey, you're you're 100 percent solid, just like God created you. It's, you it's know, not it's not like turning on a light switch. I don't know. No, no. I mean, it'd be nice if it were. But uh, yeah, yeah. The part of the journey is in the struggle. 
So we're, so what's going on after college? Take us take us through that. And uh, I I think you uh, I think you went to Vail, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I sure did. Yeah. So um, after college, I I always had this dream of living in Colorado. Again, the allure of Colorado. You see the movie, uh, you know, Dumb and Dumber, and you know all those cool ski yeah. movies and stuff. And you're like, oh, that looks like a great place. So. We bought a week-long trip to Vail um, in our senior year fraternity auction and came out to Vail, and I'm just thinking, man, this is where I'm going to go. My parents are thinking, we just spent like 125 grand on college, and you're going to go to Vail to figure out what you want to do? Yeah. So they gave, they gave me permission to go as long as I had a time limit, like 18 months, and I was out. Okay. I had to go back and get a big boy job. And I just went to Vail, and I was 215 pounds you know, what became a bouncer at a bar and just, and it, it it just, it's the same story, Ron. I mean, it just went on. It just, the party continued and, you know, Vail was just one of those things of multiple jobs, you know, quitting just the drunkenness and having fun Quote was, with air quotes here. Fun. If you're not watching the video, wasn't there uh something with a car? Uh, there were a couple things with cars, <laughs> I'm not sure which one you're referring to, but there was a um, when the car got stolen. Is that the one we're talking about? Uh, no, I haven't heard that one. Okay, actually, <laughs> that was actually in uh, that window was when, what, that was in sobriety. Never mind. Um, but I mean, I told him my car my senior year, and it ended up flipping end over end six times, and I didn't even have a scratch. Wow. You know, and um, there's a picture of that in the first book you talked about, the momentum journey. And, but those were the moments, right? I mean, sh- I should have died multiple times, but Vail was just one of those things. And I got the call from my parents and was like, Hey, it's been 18 months time to come home. And I was like, yep, time to come home. So I, I met the girl, my dreams out there, you know, but I was a very, um, I was very shallow in my relationships because with, as an alcoholic or an addict and people that live for the moment, the ability to go deep in intimacy almost vanishes. Yeah. And so, I, so I remember, my girlfriend at the time saying, you know, I just feel like we're just roommates and just friends. Like there's no depth. Um, cause I, I was, I didn't know how to go there. Right. And I was afraid of, I was afraid of conflict and had to work through that in recovery. Just because, because I was in a sense, like a shallow man because of my addictions, I could just let relationships go and they're, Oh, okay. Well, that one's gone. And and here I am, like a guy that grew up in the church, right? And this Christian guy. And I was like, right. never, didn't live that for many, 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 many years. But I always believed, I always believed I was saved, if you will. I just never chose to live the Christian life as laid out for me. Uh, but I always knew it was there and available. I just didn't want to go that route. And so I moved from Vail to, to Texas. Again, my parents still live in Fort Worth, Texas. I moved to Dallas, became a... Um, what was I doing? I was working for a bank at the time, like a personal banker and started this journey in commercial real estate, went back to get my MBA. I started wanting more for my life. You know, the, the girl I was talking about decided that she wanted to go a different direction. And, um, I was like, Oh man, let that one go. She was a good one. Wow. (laughs) You know? And, uh, and you look back on some stuff, you're like, you know, what if, what if, but then again, that's playing God, right? You're kind of like, well, yeah. you don't know what if, but that's where you were at the time. And I ended up getting, uh, meeting a good alcoholic girl in my dreams. We get married in my addiction, uh, different type of drinkers, 
you know, my, I could function and I do not like the word functioning alcoholic. I'm just going to say that right now. Okay. Because the reality is you're not functioning. I mean, you might be functioning and not getting DUIs and losing jobs or relationships, but you're not functioning because you're under the influence of substances all the time. Right. Yeah. So even though there's success and there's money and those things, it's kind of this, when I do interventions with families, I'm like, well, but, but he's a functioning alcoholic and he's really successful. I'm like, yeah, but every time he drinks, he gets a DUI twice a year, you know, or every time they do this, this happens. Or when they run out of alcohol, they're a jerk. It's kind of like, you know, are we really functioning? No, we're, we're living this kind of like l- looking at a, a heartbeat monitor. It's kind of just this steady, uh, you're kind of dead, but living, you know? So it's kind of like, a, it's like an existence. Yes. Uh, an existence yeah. with substances. Cause when the substances go away, you're a different person. And with the substances in, you're a different person. And so for me, again, I had my job. Um, again, I was gambling a lot too, married, just a bad dysfunctional marriage really. And ended up graduating with my MBA in 2001, moved to back to Indiana to work for my uncle in commercial real estate. And one of my thoughts was, um, Again, dysfunctional relationships, right? If we move to Indiana, our life will change. Like if we relocate, then our life will get better. Yeah. And and guess what happened, Ron? It didn't the two pro- the, the two problems came with ourselves, and that was us. And yeah. um, so I ended up getting divorced. Uh, I really started wanting more for my life. I mean, there was something churning inside me, like this existence sucks. You know, I've almost died in car wrecks. I've spent night and overnight jails. I've had success in business here and there but I'm just a smoldering discontent of a man. And so I decide that um, I won't get into all the story there, but I decided that just being married wasn't the best option for both of us. Right. And so we, so we ended up getting divorced. I kind of went on a free spirited couple months and then I decided I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to go to to AA. And that was my out, right? I heard about AA. I've had family members, you know, older than me in the recovery I was like, I'm going to go to this group of people and check it out. And I went to this meeting and, and I'm not, um, you know, some people say, well, if you're in recovery and you're in AA press radio and films, you never mention what program you're in. Well, this is my experience and it's not everybody's experience. But for me, I was like, AA is not for me. People they're smoking. They're talking about how life sucks being sober and all these things. Right. And I was like, I'm done with this. I'll just do it on my own. Well, the bottom line is, Ron, after I got sober later, the meeting I went to that I thought was a smoking meeting, they don't even, they've never smoked there. <laughs> you know, it was a speaker meeting. It was the best meeting in Fort Wayne. I just heard what I wanted to hear, so yeah. I didn't have to go back. And I didn't go back. And I went on my own little bender for a while. But God was getting a hold of me. He was shaking some trees. And I started dealing with a lot of suicide ideation where I would be driving down the highway and I'd see my car veer off the highway and explode and I'd be dead on the side of the road. And I'm like, man, what is going on with me? Yeah. I'd be crying at night sometimes, but I was so lonely and desperate, but I had so many quote unquote friends, right. That I could do stuff with. So externally, again, things looked okay. Internally, I was emotionally, spiritually and financially bankrupt. Like I was just dying inside. And one night I was hanging out in a bar in Fort Wayne. I'm back in Fort Wayne again. I keep going back to Fort Wayne. Just say this. I'll never go back to Fort Wayne, Indiana to live again. I mean, unless God calls me there and I have to go. But um, 
I loved kept, it in the summer. You kept circling yeah, back. You kept you kept yeah. coming back there. I did. I mean, that's home. I mean, I, I I loved Fort Wayne, and you know that's where I started my recovery. But this night, I was hanging out in the bar, and I drank and drove eight nights a week. Ron, I was I was your designated drunk driver. Never got a DUI. Talked myself out of three of them. Right. Wow. <laughs> I never got one. And uh, hanging out in a bar this night, and all of a sudden, it, I mean, it was loud music. It was tons of quote unquote fun. Lots of girls, just everything, right? And then all of a sudden, the bar got completely dead silent. Like, you could hear a pin drop. And I audibly hear the words, you're done. And then the bar got really loud again. And I looked at my buddy, Sean O'Brien. I was like, dude, I, I got to go home. I think I'm finally done drinking. Like, I really felt like God was answering my prayer to quit drinking. Right. And I drive home, like, kind of like two different guys. Like, the guy that feels like he's sober and just transitioned to a sober life. And then the guy that's really drunk driving the car. And I get home, and and the next thing I know, I'd put 350 pounds on my barbell, on my workout bench in my living room, picked up that barbell, unhinged my elbows, and just dropped the weight across my chest. So you were trying, was, you were trying to end it. Yeah, yeah, unplanned, and that was just like an autopilot moment. But what happened in that moment was, as my elbows were unhinged. The way I kind of describe it is I feel like God kind of stopped time in my apartment and looked at my dog, Jake, and said, go save your dad's life. And he kind of revealed himself to me through my dog. And my dog was just looking at me and nudging my head, my, my knee with his head, and just looking at me like, what are you doing? And my first thought was, who's going to feed you tomorrow? Right. You know? And I'm like, what about my mom and my dad and my brother? And just started thinking about the good stuff. And so... God, with all you know, his might and strength and purpose in, in life, put that barbell back on the rack. And the God, my God, you know, really carries the weight of the world. And he did that night and put that weight back on the barbell. And Let's take a moment to talk about those people ready to lose all the weight you want. Did you know that less than 2% of dieters manage to keep off the weight? When you are told to skip entire food groups, forced to limit the amount of calories you eat, your only option is to use discipline to stick to the plan. Behavioral science has proven that we only have a small supply of discipline. And the reason you need discipline to follow a diet is because diets are not natural. Your ancestors survived by eating their fill when food was plenty so they could cruise through times when it was harder to get. Your genetic code is hardwired to go without food for short periods between times of plenty. And that is what is missing in the modern diet. These days, it's like you eat one long meal per day, starting at breakfast and ending at bedtime. That is why many are sick, fat, and losing weight seems so complicated that they end up gaining it all back. You need a shift from food obsession to food freedom and give your body the break it deserves. Eat, Stop, Eat is an intermittent fasting method developed by Brad Pylon, which is a unique approach to intermittent fasting that's characterized by the inclusion of up to two non-consecutive spaced-apart fasting days per week. By the time you finish your first Eat, Stop, Eat protocol, you are going to feel a difference in the way your clothes fit. You will see that your face looks leaner and even notice that you feel lighter and more energetic. During the protocol, your insulin levels will drop to one-third of regular levels, allowing you to burn fat at an extreme pace. Practicing one to two protocols per week will increase insulin sensitivity, allowing you to store more calories in lean tissue and lessen fat even when your insulin levels are higher. 
If you think you look older than you should, then you probably suffer from chronic inflammation, and we know it is triggered from being overweight and overeating. Chronic inflammation is also linked to most of the diseases associated with aging, including arthritis, hypertension, atherosclerosis, fatty liver, asthma, heart disease, diabetes, and many more. Here is the good news. The Eat, Stop, Eat protocol has been shown to cut markers of chronic inflammation in half. The Eat, Stop, Eat protocol works for anyone, man or woman, no matter how young or old you are. Because you need time to experiment with Eat, Stop, Eat yourself, Brad has agreed to give you a guarantee. You can try it and continue using it for the next 60 days before you even decide if it is for you. Brad expects that before the end of those 60 days, you must agree that Eat, Stop, Eat is a sustainable lifestyle and that it will give you a lifetime of peace and freedom from your struggles with weight and diets. If not, Brad expects you to ask for a refund of your purchase. Brad's passion is to make health and weight control simple again. He wants you to enjoy your life, your food, your family, and your friends to the fullest. The last thing he wants is to bring more stress into your life. So if you decide that Eat, Stop, Eat is not for you, Brad will happily issue a no-hassles, no-questions-asked, 100% refund. The Eat, Stop, Eat program is affordably priced at $10 for the digital version and $19 for the physical copy, including shipping. And for a limited time, you will get a quick start guide and 15 days free VIP email coaching. Please click the link in the podcast notes under Sponsors Links for detailed information and to order. I slept in peace that night, and and I'm a guy that could drink up to two bottles of scotch in a day, just all day throughout the day in sales and marketing, right? And he took that guy to that next morning, woke up. My aunt took me to an AA meeting, and uh, God just removed the obsession and compulsion. Like, I've never had a craving since June 8th, 2001 to... All of the chaos in recovery, I've never had one craving. And that is all 100% God from the substance abuse addiction. He took that away from me on that day. So let me ask you a question. When you stopped the drinking, did what were this? Did you have like the normal side effects? Did you need detoxification or anything? Or? No, it was it was literally gone. Like I I never, and again, with interventions and the stuff I do now and seeing people go in and out of detox and all that, like I never went through detox or anything. It was like I had never ever touched a drop of alcohol my entire life, and I haven't cared to even touch it since then. When when you had that barbell incident, uh, did you call anybody? Not that evening. I mean, that was at one thirty in the morning ish or early in the morning, right? Uh, but that next morning, yeah, I ended up forgot that part. Thanks for asking that is I meant to call my Aunt Carol, who had been sober for about 25 years and lived in Fort Wayne. But I accidentally dialed my parents' phone number in Texas and just said, basically, Mom, Dad, I can't quit drinking and gambling, and uh, I need help. And my mom says, my mom says this, and my dad was on the phone too, but she brings up the fact that we just cried for like an hour. Like, I cried. It was the first time I truly, authentically, from the bottom of my heart, cried out for help and then that's when then i talked to my aunt carol she came and picked me up and took me to an a meeting in the back of a bar in fort wayne indiana and man <laughs> i walked in there i walked in there and people were doing just like that they had a great smile like you do they yeah. were laughing and they were happy being sober and happy not being under the influence of alcohol now they, they said recovery is not easy but these are the steps we do and i saw god on there and i was like totally cool with that 
And God for me is Jesus Christ. And I saw that. I was like, okay, I can look at this recovery through that lens. And I just did everything they told me to do. My sponsor said, hey, what makes you happy? And I said, milkshakes, without a doubt. And he goes, all right, 12 o'clock every day, I want you to go get a milkshake. So I left work at 12 o'clock on my lunch break, walked down the street and got a milkshake, you know, and just started going to meetings and meeting all these people from all different walks of life that just didn't want to die from addiction, right? Right. And um, and back 21 years ago, that's kind of all there was. It was like AA, that was kind of it, right? Now we have things like just smart recovery, celebrate recovery, AA, NA, CA, OA, OA, AA, I mean, all these different recovery type groups. And they all have their purpose in recovery. And I say a timing in your recovery. And, you know, there's some struggles I have with some of that now this far down the road, but that time, that's what I needed. I needed a community. I needed people to tell me what to do. I didn't need to like give me suggestions. It was like, do this. I was like, okay, I'll go do that. And, you know, then I had to start working myself out of my hole. I ended up filing bankruptcy because I just couldn't, I had like $67,000 in credit card debt and recently was divorced and all those things. But I was like, for me, it was either, I remember sitting with my sponsor and I struggled with, I was like, I just want to pay this off. He's like, okay, do you want to die or do you want to live? He's like, it's okay to file bankruptcy, man. It's not, you don't want that easy out, but if, if this is threatening your sobriety and you're going to gamble a lot or drink over this. So he just, I just kind of sought some wise counsel and, and I didn't make a lot of major moves until I like talked to people that cared about me enough to say, why are you moving? Like relocating cities. And just realized I needed mentors in my life and I needed a coach and I needed a, a sponsor is what they called it then. But sure. Um, I mean, that's why now in my life today, when I have business coaches that coach me on business and, you know, people that support me and stuff like that, that are helping me be accountable to what I say I'm going to do. And I don't do the best job of that these days, even still, right. 21 years later, but I'm a work in progress. So take us through. Okay. So, June 8th, 2001, that's when you stopped drinking. Take us through the years, 2001 to 2012. What's going yeah. on after that? Yeah, 2001 to 2012, 11 years. Well, I did the things that were healthy in the beginning they told me to do. You know, and it was being community. So I was doing softball. I was doing, you know, camping trips with people. I, I, I was living in Fort Wayne, Indiana, right? And I didn't, I wanted to live somewhere else because in recovery, they tell you you can do anything you want to do as long as your spiritual conditioning is solid. So there's this website. It doesn't exist anymore, Ron, but it was called findyourspot.com. Okay. I don't think it does. I'll have to go back and look, but findyourspot.com. So you go in and you put all these parameters in, like, what do you like? I'm like, smaller towns. I like the mountains, pet-friendly cities, whatever. Put all these parameters in. It starts throwing things up like Tennessee, North Carolina, Kentucky. And I'm thinking, I've never been to any of those states before. It's like, huh, Okay. So I fly out to North Charlotte, North Carolina. I was in commercial real estate when I got sober. I lost my job just because of collateral damage from, uh, you know, just manipulating still and early, you know, in my addiction and early recovery. Yeah. And I fly out to Charlotte, North Carolina to go interview with CB Richard Ellis out there to this job. I'm like, this would be great. And I was like, the job didn't work. The interview didn't work out very well. But I, I, anywhere I went, I went to an AA meeting somewhere. Because the A is one of those communities that's around the entire world. Like here in Denver, we have something that you, before the pandemic, we had like 1,600 face-to-face AA recovery meetings a week. 
Wow. But that didn't include that didn't include all the other type of recoveries. Like re- you talk about recovery inclusive and stuff, but that was it. So I go to Charlotte and I'm like, I just want to go to a meeting. So I go to this big speaker meeting out in Charlotte, North Carolina. It was actually in Matthews, North Carolina. And it was at a church. There were like 300 people there or something, you know, it was crazy how big it was. And they say, hey, is anybody visiting? And my sponsor said, hey, if you go anywhere, just say you're visiting, right? Right. I stood up and I was like, hey, my name's Rob. And, you know, visiting, from, thinking about moving out here. And I literally left that meeting with a stack of business cards. and said, hey, dude, if you want to live here, we got you. So a few weeks later, moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. Wow. You know? Instant networking. Did, Instant oh, yeah, networking. Reco- oh, it was. Did recovery, got a job just helping a guy lay carpet and somebody in recovery. And then got out of commercial real estate. Became an eighth grade algebra teacher. Um, that led to me getting a job as a college career counselor in uh, Indiana University in Greencastle, Indiana. That led to and there's recovery everywhere. That led to me buying a mobile uh, RV, Class A RV, and uh, started the Momentum Journey, which was a documentary and book about why people love what they do. So I started interviewing people around the country, right, about their stories and why they love. I've always been fascinated with people's stories. Right. As a podcaster, you are too, as I am as a podcaster. Absolutely. And as like, you know, the addiction invention book I wrote, it's my story and 10 other people's stories in there. And I just love stories. And so I just started, I said, yeah, I'm going to travel the country in this RV and go interview all these people. Okay. Is that that where you came up with the title, The Momentum Journey, right down at exit 63? Yeah, yeah. So if if you go on YouTube and you type in the momentum journey, you'll find a 19-minute documentary I did about these people I interviewed. And it, and I love the word mojo. That's how momentum journey started was the word mojo. Oh, okay. And um so I left my secured job because I'm a I'm a I always call myself a passionate broke entrepreneur. <laughs> I always <laughs> have ideas and most of them didn't work out. Yeah. Well, this one, you know, I had this RV and had two recent college grads that came with me. And, you know, uh, on day one, the RV died seven times. It's wow. in the documentary. It's in the documentary. It's in the book. Uh, the book is only available from my closet. It's not available on Amazon really anymore or anything like that. It's a cool, it's a really cool book and a cool story. And see, every everything leads into something else, right? Yeah. I, I just believe that. I mean, college career counselor, got fascinated with people's careers, left to do that. The night the RV broke down there, if you've ever traveled on I-70 before near Effingham, Illinois, there's a huge cross on the side of the road. It's like a 250-foot tall cross. Like, you can't miss it. You know, billions of people see it every year. And the night the RV broke down, I saw that cross, and it was like slow motion. And we're going 60, 70 miles an hour, but it was like slow motion to me. I'm like, man, that meant something, but I don't know what it meant. It was a sign. It was a sign. It was. Totally. Yeah. And the RV, the RV breaks down that night. A cool story about that. I won't get into it, but that led me to come to Colorado because I incorporated my business in Colorado when I lived in Indiana because I always wanted to live out in Colorado. Okay. So I move out here, move into my brother's basement. Again, there's recovery everywhere. So I tap into AA there, move into my brother's basement, keep working on the documentary and the book. And then in 2004, I published my first book. And then that led to me doing this huge three-day Christian music festival in Colorado, right? Which led me to meet my wife in 2006, who lived in Denver. We get married in 2006. I moved to Denver. Again, still sober. Still gambling, though. That's important. 
based on your 2012 mark. Okay. What, gambling what, here what, what are you gambling? What kind of gambling are you doing? Uh, at this point, it was literally um, like scratch tickets and stuff. So it's nothing cr- like crazy, but, but still this mentality of trying to get a buck, right? Yeah. And so that's still going on behind the scenes. And then my son's born in 2007. Beautiful blessing. Zeke is awesome. He's 15 now and loved being a dad. Um, and then 2008, I end up, so 2007, six, I'm still doing this three day Christian music festival in the mountains of Colorado. Right. Right. But I live in Denver in 2008, the event happens and it was 15,000 people came over three days. It was free event, huge blessing, cool story in that too. And, but that was really hard on our marriage. See, cause there wasn't a whole lot of income doing a free three day Christian music festival. Right. Right. But I had this passion for Jesus and, but lack of focus as a man and a husband and a provider. Right. So I, but I did end up getting a great job as a software sales guy. They closed that division down and a friend of mine approached me and said, Hey, you should uh, think about becoming an insurance agent. And all I saw was dollar signs. I'm like, man, I could be that half a million dollar a year producer. So I got caught up in that. Um, did really well in the beginning, my but that was 2000, 2008 and nine. So 2009, 2009. My daughter was born in 2010. And I stopped going to meetings, Ron. I stopped going to Bible studies. I stopped doing the stuff that was good for me. And I was kind of right back where I was back in 2001 without the drinking. So you're but concentrating gambling, on, the, uh, on making money. Yeah, and, and everything yeah. else went to the side. Yeah, and cutting corners and just kind of, you know, manipul- manipulative behaviors came back. Because, I, again, I wasn't around good stuff. I wasn't opening up to other men about what was going on in my life. Yeah. It just wasn't. And and that was the struggle. I was, I was kind of on my own little island internally. But externally, you couldn't really tell. But at this point in my life, I started pulling away from people. You know, my wife and I weren't doing so hot. And so whenever we would argue and stuff, I'd just say, you know, screw it. I'm going to the casinos. So then I'm at casinos, right? Now I, I would go to, in my early addiction, I would go to Vegas every now and then. And I, and I love the excitement of the casino. I didn't know why until I got, you know, freed from that, right? But I love the excitement of it. And that was just a tough place to be because I was losing my agency because of just sales and production numbers. You know, my wife and I were both completely, our adrenals were shot. You know, we had two young kids. She was working full-time for a radio station with events and weekends, and I was working full-time in my agency, and we just weren't doing well. We weren't connecting, and it was just a tough place, tough place to be. Yeah. So I, I ended up losing my agency in November 2011, and for me, that's when a lot of the mental negative messages, like you suck, you failed as a husband, you failed as a father, you, you, you're kind of a loser. Like I was hearing a lot of those opposite messages of what God says I am. And and I started believing a lot of them that I just did completely like drop the ball and failed in many areas of my life, all areas of my life. Yeah. The mind, the mind can really do that. It's, it's all up in the, in the mind. Yeah. And I was, you know, just, I call it like driven by the subconscious. You believe when you have trauma and all these crazy life events, right. They say you're, you kind of get stuck in the basement of your brain. Yeah. And you don't you don't get to the front of your brain where you can reason and think logically and you're just kind of in the survival mode. And that's exactly where I was personally in the survival mode. And uh yeah, it was not a fun place to be. Well, I know uh 
2012 rolls around and something something major happens. You want to yeah. tell us what's going on that time period? Big time, yeah. Yeah, I mean, 2012 came, and again, I lost my agency in 2011, so I hadn't really been working. I always had a side gig going, so I was trying to build that up, you know, and hope this network marketing, this this network marketing thing would take off, right? <laughs> and, and I believe in that industry a lot. I just didn't have the right focus and discipline. And uh, so, yeah, so 2012 rolls around, and uh, it was actually February 14th, 2012, and... Uh, I'd say all the wall, I I, I, re, I refer to a man's brain, or at least my brain. We'll just call it my brain. It was like a waffle. And I could compartmentalize everything going on in my life between work or, you know, being a husband or a father or whatever. I would compartmentalize these things, right? And the best way I can describe what happened that night is like my waffle brain turned into a pancake. And everything just kind of melted together. And I ended up in a mental blackout that morning, lighting some boxes on fire on my covered patio. And... Once I realized what I had done, I, I couldn't stop it. It was just, the fire just took off. So I had to rush upstairs and get my family up. It was one thirty in the morning, rip my wife out of bed, rip our two kids out of bed, get downstairs, get my neighbors out. And uh, yeah, long story short, the the whole house or the, you know, the townhouse pretty much went up that night, pretty much lost everything that we had. And it was just a like a climactic moment in my own life. Like how in the beep did I get here? Would you say that was, would you say with with your journey as involved and complex as it is, would you say that was the rock bottom moment? Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, it was, it was one of those moments where I didn't, I didn't need a wake up call. That was the wake up call. But I also didn't know how to deal with it because like, I knew I was going to go to prison but what do I do with my family? How do I protect them? And so I went into the, I was still gambling a lot too. See, that's the thing. My gambler mind kicked in. I was like, I got to cover this up. So I lied about it to everybody, right? And even the next day when the fire investigator came, our neighbors were talking about some kids that had been like screwing around on their porches and, you know, someone tried to kick someone's front door in a couple of days before that or whatever. And so there were all these signs like, oh yeah, okay. I could probably get away with this. And and part of it, I probably could have. But from my spiritual perspective and my faith, which kicked in real quick, because I mean, I, I ran back to AA and church and like, <laughs> I was like, I need to figure this out. Oh, yeah. I just, I just knew I couldn't hold the secret in, but I tried to as long as I could. And again, lying to my wife and friends and, and uh, kind of playing up what happened, like, oh, poor us. But I was the only guy that really knew it. I mean, to an extent, really knew what happened. Yeah, and it was dark. I mean, it was it was tough, and and so eventually, I ended up confessing to my wife what happened, and then my attorney was just like, "You can't tell anybody this because you're under investigation." I was like, "Yeah, I know," but so we slowly started bringing in friends and family, telling them exactly what happened, and I get it. People were pissed, and they were felt deceived, and they were hurt, and yeah, rightly so. And some stuck with us, and some just kind of said, "Yeah, we we need to see how this shakes out." Family and friends, and. Uh, but I knew in June when I confessed to authorities what happened, that's when I really turned everything over to God. Like it was, I could do nothing else. And I just said, it's all his show. And I just held my hands up and said, okay, I surrender. Yeah. And then I, then I had to start pull, you know, being pulled out of that mental space going forward. And then long story short, December that year, see the, the authorities knew what happened in June of that year. But they didn't arrest me until December of that year. 
So they did they did, did they know before you ever confessed to it? Did oh, they, they had their suspicions. They had their I mean, suspicions. There, there really is no way they could have proved it, in my opinion. Okay. But I knew it, and yeah. there's no way I could have lived with that my whole life. So right. in December that year, again, six months later, they finally arrested me. And uh, on 19 felonies and 13 misdemeanors in December of 2012. And wow. talk about a dark moment, man. I mean, that was like, I was the only guy I'd ever known that been like arrested like that or was going to go to prison potentially. And so it was like, what do we do now? You know, and then I end up getting arrested and God's, I mean, there's so many God stories in, from this point forward in my life that, I mean, my wife and I, at some point just need to write a book about it. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, two days later I was released from prison, from jail and uh, on a hundred thousand dollar bond, which was reduced to $25,000. And eight months later in June 8th or July 8th, 2013, um, I was looking at two years of work release to 56 years in prison was my open sentencing that day. And you talk about turning over to God and letting him control the outcome. I mean, we had no clue. And the courtroom was filled with friends and family and pastors. And uh, the judge, which I know was God just blessing me with going to prison instead of work release, uh, sent me to, you know, total of 13 years in prison was my sentencing back in 2013. Obviously, we're not to 2026 yet, so that's not the story. Yeah. But we thought I was gone for 13 years, or it was eight-year charge with the five-year charge, right? And it was kind of like we didn't know how this was going to shake out. But over time, we learned how to navigate the system. And while I was away over in Delta, Colorado, you know, the furthest prison in Delta from my house, my wife was back here, you know, how to be a single mom. Still figuring out, like, what do I do with this guy? You know, and she had her own conversations with God, and she had to process that herself. You know, is my husband a psychopath, or who is the guy? And um, her conviction was to stay with me and work it out. And we have, and we do, and we still do today. There's still collateral damage from that today. And uh, But while I was gone, I did everything I could to be a dad to my kids, like doing their homework with them on the phone. And like their school sent me their homework ahead of time so I could do it with them and I had to make the best out of the, like the best out of the worst moment of my life. And so I was all about Jesus at the time and poured into my faith, figured out, you know, is the Bible real? I've grown up with this my whole life. I've never read it. So just studying and reading and becoming a student again. And, and I, all I could do is work on me. I couldn't work on other people or my stuff, other stuff. It was just, sure. I'd work on Rob. Oh, absolutely. So I figured out, I figured out how I was again and just stepped into that. And uh, it's easy to do when you're away more challenging when you get released and come home. Yeah. And so 10 and a half months later, I was released to a halfway house, spent 11 months in a halfway house. And as I was getting ready to get released, uh, I had to start figuring out what I was going to do for a job or career. I mean, I have an MBA, like I'm not a dumb person. I just make dumb mistakes, you know? Oh yeah. And um, so I get released and then spend 11 months on probation and then, you know, get paroled home. And so 22 months later, I ended up moving back in with my family and just been rebuilding ever since 2000. It was really April 14th or April 15th, 2015. It's like tax day means a lot more to me now than just tax day. It's the day I got to move home in, in uh, 2015. So so when you were going through all of this, did you ever go back to drinking? No, I, I've never thought about it ever. Again, I still gambled, yeah. right? That was that. And it's like, 
There's these different things. There's process addiction, which is like gambling, food, porn, sex, you know, shopping, gaming. Those are process addictions. Then there's substance abuse. Substance addictions like, you know, drugs, alcohol, things we have to put into our body to actually get high. Right? I can't get drunk if I don't drink. Right. But I can right. sure get a dopamine hit, you know, just by anything, looking at a girl, placing a bet, you know, spending more money than I should, buying the big TV whatever. So that was something I had to learn how to process, but I didn't know what that was until I got trained to be an interventionist and a coach in 2015, launched my business in 2016, and then got into the more the mental health addiction world. And I've learned a lot, a lot, a lot since then for sure. Yeah. I, le- I learned a lot. Sorry. I was coughing there. So I like tried to, I, I muted it real okay. quick. Um, but yeah, but it was, I, I, I've learned a lot and I've grown a lot and I've fallen short and I've risen, I've risen up and Sometimes trying to figure out what God's doing in my life still today, right? And then stepping into what I feel like he's called me to do, which is which is helping families. Like, I love yeah. helping families break the cycle of addiction. That's why I've written two books on that and just do podcasting and really try to do you that. Found your but, purpose. I mean, you found yeah, your yeah. Purpose. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, recovery hasn't been easy. And a lot of times purpose, passion, and pocketbook don't always add up, right, for people. And, and it's this journey of, you know, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? I've gone through that the last, you know, uh, seven years of, you know, these seasons of dryness and then seasons of success. And it's just kind of, yeah. you know, not everybody can afford intervention, but everyone needs help. Right. So I just committed to help anyone that calls or reaches out where they can afford it or not to an extent. Um, but mostly I wrote the book on the addiction intervention book. So I love the intervention process and helping families understand that. And how can the family find freedom, even if their loved one doesn't choose freedom from the addictions. How do they find freedom with healthy boundaries and live their life and don't just drop everything the minute Billy gets drunk and calls for help? It's like, well, Billy, we've given you the resources. We've given you the tools, man. Now it's time for you to use them because we're not running to your rescue again. And that is hard for people, right? Because if I don't do this and he'll do that, I'm like, you don't have as much control as you really think you do. But we think we have control. that If I do this, they won't do that. It's like, well, control is an illusion. Trust me. I know that. So what besides uh, raising awareness to drug, alcohol, gambling abuse can we do to fix these problems? Uh, the United States is uh, 5% of the world's population, but we consume 70% of the world's prescription meds. We represent 90% of advertising on television in the world for prescription drugs. We lose 800 per day from suicide, alcohol, and drugs, overdoses, have skyrocketed to above 100,000 a year. How do we fix the problem? Let's talk about your program, your book, your website, your coaching techniques. Wow. I mean, you look at our culture, we have the easiest access to mental health counselors around the world. We got telehealth everywhere, right? We have the easiest access, the most counselors, the most therapists, the most recovery programs, the most treatment centers, all this stuff, right? But yet we still have this horrible epidemic everywhere that we go. Right. So, so what is the answer? Right. And I, I feel like a lot of times we're looking at these pl- things in the wrong places. And I want to go back to what I said earlier in the show about kind of like AA, like I love AA and NA, like those programs work. The The problem with a lot of it is there's in, in our treatment centers and other stuff, there's a lot of shaming that goes on in fear-based recovery in the sense that if you don't do this, you will do that. If you don't go to a meeting, you will drink. You hear people say all the time, if I don't go to a meeting, I'm going to drink. 
Or if I don't go see my therapist, I'm going to do this to myself, whatever. Instead of when I do these things, I will have a good recovery. When I do these things, I'll live a transformed life. When I do these things, I will change and be a transformed person. That's what I do in my coaching and interventions. Is I'm I'm looking at when we do the right things, our life will change. Right? So think about it this way. If if you have credit card debt and all you focus on is getting out of credit card debt, what's your focus? Debt. If you focus on building wealth, what's naturally going to happen to the debt? It's going to go away. So if we focus on recovery and living a transformed life and figure out who we are, we don't have to worry about addiction. I'd never refer to myself as an addict anymore. It's my choice. I don't because I'm a transformed man. Right? So I feel like what people, what's missing in people's lives is figuring out what grounds you and what identifies you. Because if we don't figure out what identifies us, something else will identify us. And you look around the world today, I mean, holy cow, I don't want the world defining who I am. I don't want the public school system defining who my kid is, right? I don't want, you know, a treatment program defining who I am. I want to go back to the source and the truth. And so for me, and a lot of what I do with my coaching, and it's it's fun when I say it's funny when I say it sometimes because people either tune out or they tune in, right? The coaching I do with people is really focused on who we are in Christ. For me personally, and when I work with people, when they can ground themselves in something that is truth now it takes a while to get there if you don't believe that stuff right right but if that door is opened and people want to explore that there is truth there because you know see god says that i'm his workmanship god says i'm his child god says i'm a saint i'm an heir to the throne god says all these great things about who i am i haven't had to do one thing to earn that it just is truth and that's for me and that's in my faith and what i do and about Probably 55% of people that I work with could care less about that. They just want my help, right? Even with interventions, like, hey, we know you're a Christian, but we don't care about that. I was like, cool, don't worry about it. We're just going to get done what needs to get done. But I let people know that's from where I come now because that is what has given me the stability in my life. And again, I fall short every day (laughs) with the way I want to behave and want to act and things I want to do. Right. It's just because I'm human. But I feel like we're just looking for stuff in the wrong places. And obviously that conversation go a lot of different directions. But from a simplistic purpose, we're looking at we're looking at things that are moving target. Like if I want to find my identity and value in what my wife thinks about me, then I'm gonna be up and down every other day. Hey, my wife thinks I'm doing great today. Hey, my wife got mad at me today. Hey, my boss thinks I'm doing great today. He gave me kudos. Or why isn't my boss congratulating me today? Well, I must not be doing a good job. you know. Or, hey, you scored three goals in the game. You're doing great, son. Or why didn't you score a goal yesterday? I mean, talk about a yo-yo of identity, yeah. right? But if, we can, if all of us can figure out the core thing of what defines who we are, then anything that comes against that is false. Right? If someone says, hey, Ron, you're an idiot. And if you believe you're an idiot, guess what? You're an idiot. Right. But you know you're, you know you're not. Right. right. And people say, Rob, you're 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 acting like an idiot. OK, I can identify with that. Yeah, because that's my behavior. But I am not an idiot. If someone calls me one unless I believe it. Right. So that that's the thing. Like 
to really truly figure out who you are, then again, anything else that comes against that is completely false. And why enter, even entertain the thought? There's a lot of power in that. Yes, that makes a whole lot of sense. What what motivated you to write the book, the addiction intervention book? Can you tell our audience a little bit about, about what they can expect to get out of that book? Yeah, sure. So it's it's a tool. I mean, it says on the front, 11 breakthrough strategies, right, uh, for professionals and families to help people find just, you know, a loved one, find freedom from addiction. And that's why. Because one, I don't think people understand the power of an intervention and what it really does. The TV show is out there, kind of screwed up the whole idea of an intervention in a sense, but the general idea is there. That yeah, they're on they're on TV, right? They're on camera. So they're not shocked that there's an intervention happening. But there's a lot of different ways to help people, which is why I wrote the book. It's why I interviewed over 20 people and just selected the 10 that are in the book because they're different parts of the country. They have different processes that they do to help a family understand there is more than one way to help your loved one break the cycle of addiction. But again, if they don't choose to get healthy, you can still get healthy as the family member. And loved one, if you decide to get healthy and your family doesn't, then you can learn how to live life with an unhealthy family. It doesn't have to mess with your recovery. Right? So there were, yeah, that's why I wrote the book was one to share my story two to share my process as I do it lifted from the rut and uh, which is the name of my business. I call my business, a business ministry, a business tree is, you know, lifted from the rut.com is where people go to get all my information. Uh, but also sharing these stories about amazing people around the country that help people. And and uh, I just want to honor my friend David Marion. He's in the book. Uh, he was a good friend of mine in the recovery field and just a solid interventionist and coach. And he died about a month or two, I think it was a month ago, uh, just suddenly with a heart attack. And um, I was glad to capture his story in the book because he's a great guy. And the cool thing is that in the book and on the front cover, People, there's a website that people can go to and actually watch all the actual interviews I did with them, like you and I are doing now. Oh, great! They can actually, see it brings the book to life. Yeah, and I mean, I wish every treatment center would buy ten copies and give it to their staff, or you know, families would just buy them and hand them out at Christmas to people and say, "Hey, I know you got addiction in your family. Read this thing." And several families have found the book on Amazon, reached out to me through my free discovery call. And hired me to do an intervention for their family member just from having a book on Amazon. Um, so that's why I wrote that one. And then I wrote the other one, the uh, 101 Reasons to Quit Getting Drunk During the Holidays book, which is really a, uh exploratory journey that each person can do with their relationship to alcohol. But insert shopping, insert pornography, just change alcohol to whatever your addiction is. Read the book. And a lot of the book is blank which is kind of fun because it gives people the challenging questions to answer about their journey with addiction. All right. Well, that's, that's good to know. And uh, we're going to showcase that uh, those books on our, uh, on our Facebook group and uh, some other places around the internet. So we'll get some exposure for you, Rob, for people out there struggling, what advice can you give them? Yeah, well, reach out to someone locally to get some help. I mean, just find resources in your local area. I mean, there's free resources between AA, Celebrate Recovery, Smart Recovery, NA, OA, all those things. So the excuse is in your head because the, the, the resources are there. And then if you need great professional places like treatment centers or programs and things like that, more of a acute need where you may have mental health, mental illness, or just serious substance abuse, reach out for help. 
And please, if you struggle with whatever the drug it is, don't try to detox at home. People that try to detox and they're dependent on alcohol die in their homes all the time because they're just going to try it at home. Get professional detox. Whether you got Medicaid or commercial insurance, I mean, call a local resource. Call me. Go to liftedfromtherut.com on my resource page and try to find something local in your area. But just don't try to do it alone because that's how people die. How can people contact you? That one, they can just uh, call me, 970-331-4469, and I mean that. Two, just go to liftedfromtherut.com. Everything you need is on there. Uh, podcasts, how to bring me to an event or a, a moment of as a speaker to your event or conference or men's retreat. Uh, all the details are all over the website. You just got to scroll around a little bit. Liftedfromtherut.com is all you need. Everything is there. I'm all over Facebook and find me on LinkedIn or wherever, but uh, okay. phone numbers are really, phone numbers are really cool, quick, easy way to just uh, call me or text me or whatever. And um, I'll respond uh, as, as I can. Okay. That's lifted from the rut.com. And for everybody yes. listening out there, they'll all this would be in the podcast notes. I want to thank you so much, Rob, for being on the podcast, sharing your personal story and shining a spotlight on the addiction health crisis we have. Uh, I want to wish you good fortune in your work to help people going forward and best of luck working and finalizing uh, your dream. We didn't get to talk about much of uh, creating the men's transitional home. Uh, comments and suggestions for the uh, podcast, you can email me at it's a wrap with rap at gmail.com, our Facebook group and page. It's a wrap with rap. We're on Instagram. It's a wrap with rap podcast. We have a website. It's a wrap with rap.com. And we're, everything's on YouTube. All the episodes are on YouTube. It's a wrap with wrap the podcast on cut. I want to thank everyone for listening. Please stay safe. And for now, it's a wrap.